Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So today, my guest is Michelle Hillier, and she is the founder of Breath and Fire, a wellness program that helps people identify gaps in their lives that are holding them back from becoming who they truly want to be and connecting to their authentic self. So Michelle is going to share her story of how the COVID-19 pandemic pushed her to her breaking point, and she had to face her addiction to alcohol and get support and reach out for support and make those changes in her life that helped her move forward and reconnect to her own authenticity and connect with her true self. I think you're going to like this episode. Michelle comes to the podcast with an authentic heart and a willingness just to help others. But before we start, if you are getting a lot out of the addicted mind, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I do read them. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me and it really does help the podcast get found. And also think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Michelle Hillier, and we're going to talk about all things breath and fire. We're going to talk about yoga. We're going to talk about mindfulness, movement, and how that helps people dealing with trauma and recovery and all that stuff. But Michelle, let's first just get to know you and your story, and we'll just jump right in. Great. Thanks, Dwayne, for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share. Most importantly, you know, spread, spread the love, spread the word, spread the joy of life yeah. and recovery. It's just, it's my, it's a complete 180 where I was two years ago. That's for sure. I have to say that. So yeah, I, I guess, should I share my little bit of my, how I got here? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> share a little bit to help people understand your story sure. because then it'll help people understand what motivates you to do this work and why it's important and how it's helped you and, and all that. So let's jump in with a little history. All right. So I always like to start with how I feel now. So I I feel 
in recovery. I have um, just over a year of sobriety, but I've been, I feel like I've been in recovery for a year and a half. That includes a relapse, which is a sto- part of many people's story. I, I took it Absolutely. as a gift. And yep. so July 21 was my <clears throat> actual one year of sobriety. So this last 18 months though, I feel like I've entered my authentic self again. I'm a woman that I lost along the way the last 20, 25 years. And I've really gotten curious in recovery, like what happened? Where did alcohol fit into that? Where did I go off my path? And how did it take me this long to get here? <laughs> and most importantly, how, how did I have to like crack wide open to get access to all the tools to find her again? Right. To find your spirit, you yeah. lost yourself somewhere along the way. Can you give I us did. a little bit of that story of sure. losing yourself and I don't think that I think that can be common for a lot of people. We can get caught up in our lives and just forget who we are in a way. Mm, for sure. So, I was born in a smaller town outside of Toronto, Canada. So I'm in, I'm from Toronto. So a smaller town where drinking was everywhere, <laughs> bush parties, uh, you know, alcohol was everywhere, and I felt I, I I loved it. it. It was the norm. It was also around my my family at celebrations. So. I saw that where there was alcohol and people were laughing and the room was warm, that seemed like the right thing to do. So I, I slid into it very easily in, in high school and university. I would consider myself a sort of normal drinker, but normal for where I lived and who I surrounded myself with. I don't think it's normal at all right, when I look right. back. <laughs> when I look so, back. But at the time, it, it kind of fit into your time, group. At the time, it fit into my group. I, I didn't drink more than anybody else. I didn't black out. I didn't fall down. I binge drank for sure all through high school, university, but I kept it together. I was a, you know, a elite level dancer. So I, I consider dance and athletics the same in terms of commitment. And, and I was like at the top of my game. So it didn't affect that. It didn't affect my grades. I was in the Dean's honors list in university. Like I just, it, 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 it was working for me put it that way alcohol it was working it, it was working for me a couple of hangover mornings and then i'd pick my socks up again and get to class and and you know hit up the a's so it was never really an issue from there i went on to work on a cruise ship for a year so I, i'm a dancer so it was a sort of dream job and the drinking still continued on that experience and and it was we had a lot of leisure time so it was like a party for a year and again i found right. the groups that drank and i look back at the last you know 20 years Dwayne, and i look like i found the groups that drank always i i that made me feel normal you know that and i never was the heaviest drinker i was like oh i'm normal i, I can and i always got the term wow michelle can really drink and I kind of wore it like a badge of honor, <laughs> right? You know, right? But you weren't the worst, right? So you no, could say, "Well, no, I, I, I'm not that I bad. I'm not. I, I'm not bad yeah. as that person over there. I'm not that but person. I can. I can hold my own. I can hold my own. And through that too, you know, I had to maintain my my physique as a dancer. I was a fitness instructor, so I was in the wellness space, but still sort of destroying myself inside with alcohol. And I kind of knew it. I kind of like had glimmers of that back in my early 20s, late 20s, which was 20 years ago. But I kind of just let it go. It's working for me. Keep it going. So then I guess fast forward, I then uh, got into marriage, got into motherhood and life sort of came to a slow. It slowed down. And I'm sure a lot of any parents listening to any of your listeners, especially mothers, like my giving birth to my newborn was it just rocked my world my identity was totally shooken it was uh at that time too i was so i missed out a little part i was dancing on the cruise ship came back performed professionally so here i was using my skills and my craft and making money but i was working on all of the weekends and evenings 
as a performer. So I thought, oh, I, yeah. I, this is not for me. I want to, I kind of want to work when regular people work. So I became a teacher. So I was a high school teacher, dance drama, still drank, partied on the weekends. Like I found the crowd, found the teachers that drank and <laughs> my, my <laughs> staff, you know, it just, it was working. And then I decided after three years of, of teaching that I don't like to follow rules. So I kind of knew this as a kid. I'm a bit of a rebel, a bit of a risk taker. Again, this kind of ties into alcoholic thinking, you know, the rules don't apply to me. Like that, right. even in my recovery, I struggled with a bit of that with the 12 step program at the beginning, like, oh, that's, that's not for me. I'm, I, those are for the other people. <laughs> right. So I had this right. other, this other, maybe my ego is speaking here, but because I'm trying to dismantle it in my recovery, that's for sure is like, I thought it was better than that. I thought that I could do it my way. And my way was going to be the creative way, the right way. And so they kind of had that mentality when I left teaching, but it, it worked in my favor because I started my own business. So I guess my entrepreneurial spirit was sort of sparked and I created a, a company that provided dance and movement resources and workshops and teacher trainings for teachers across North America. We were in the, the U.S. a lot as well. And it was I was at the top of my game in about 2012. I had a team of facilitators and then I got pregnant with my son who is 10 now. And it was, he's like, you know, it was totally planned and we wanted him more than ever, but I didn't realize how much it would shake my identity and take away that free time that I had to, to drink, like to drink and party. Cause you can't drink and party and work. Yeah. And work. And my work involved a lot of travel. So here I am in hotels and airports and conferences. Booze is flowing as you can imagine at any sort of event like that and normalized. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm now new mom, sort of grounded at home because you get very isolated, and I was quite I found it very boring. I found the the routine of motherhood. I feel guilty even saying that, but it's just the truth because life is just slow. It's about this beautiful little specimen of a baby that needs you, and nothing else right. can happen. So yeah, that's what I, I mean. Did. I, I, <laughs> And I don't, you know, saying that, I think that's a reality of parenthood. I'm a parent and I can totally understand that. This shifts everything, shifts all of your thinking. And some of it is so amazing and some of it is so hard and just difficult. And so it's a mix of that. So I totally get it. Yeah. So, you you know, you know, like I found alcohol as an escape. It took sort of the the boredom, the edge off the, when I was isolated, it gave me something to feel like I was doing that was fun. Like that made me feel like I, and then I found the mummies that drink. I found the mummies in the park groups that drink. And I don't know if that it's just a mom thing or a dad thing, but you know, Oh, come for a play date, bring your babies and bring a bottle of wine. Perfect. So they kind of, it also continued me to, to, to continue drinking and finding groups that like I consider myself an opportunistic drinker. And I found, I thought this was normal. <laughs> right. This was what normal people did. But it's like you said earlier, it's, you're losing something there. You're losing yourself. It's not really, That's right. you know, you're getting lost. You're getting more and more lost as this, as this goes along. That, and that's what I look back the, at the, my, in lots of reflection and recovery of like, how, like, what are the pieces, the dots that put this together? And it was, it's very much connected to loss of identity. And then I would, I would mask it with alcohol because that made, that would cover up the feelings because all we want to do is change the way we feel. That's what I, what I take from when I, why I drank. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be resentful. I don't want to be sad. I, I, even when I was happy, I would reward myself with alcohol. I I was a very happy social drinker. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I guess the story goes on where uh, after I had my son, his name is James, and he's the love of my life now, or always has been. Um, but I then joined a very intense workout group to, you know, you know, shake the last bit of baby weight, which I never think anybody needs to do. But that was my sort of goal. And I met with a group of very competitive women. And through that process, I tore both hip labrums. So I, oh I was goodness. in, I know, and I had a predisposition from, from birth that I didn't know about. So my hips were already wonky. Then you add in childbirth and there was always something kind of wrong with them. My whole dance career, but I did, I just, I didn't pay attention to it. So after childbirth, yeah, he was about three or four. I tore both labrums and then arthritis kicked into both of them very badly to the point where I hardly could walk. So guess what wow. I did? I drank, I, dr I drank over it because the pain to numb the pain to also identity. Whoa, you're not going to take away my movement. Cause I, that time was doing a lot of corporate activations and wellness sessions and workshops. And now you're going to make me grounded. Like I don't, I'm saying you as in the universe, <laughs> you're right. going to take away my, my movement, my identity to move. <laughs> yeah. It's slowly taking yeah. away these things from you and you don't know how to cope and, but alcohol works. Alcohol worked at the time. It did. So I went to see a surgeon and I thought it was going to be a simple like laparoscopic surgery. And he looked at all my images and said, Michelle, both of your hips need to be fully replaced. So I had double hip replacement surgery in 2018. It was oh my goodness. shocking. Again, completely grounded me, isolated me in, in my recovery while I was, you know, in the lazy boy with the compressor machine and the ice machine. And I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't move. It was very much like a precursor to what I felt like in COVID, like the isolation yeah. at home in my, in my not being able to go anywhere. So, you know, the, the, the post-surgery uh, recovery, I definitely, alcohol took an edge off. And that's the first time I started drinking, I'd say alone. Where I, I, I was wow. always a social drinker. I, I don't remember a time ever in my 20s and 30s where I would drink alone. I was, it connected me to people. It right. was my connector to groups, to my my partners. It was a way to connect. So in the boredom of the hip surgery recovery, I was drinking alone. And it, it did trigger me like, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Seem right. Yeah. It doesn't seem right that I'm doing this alone, but I did it. Yeah. And everything's been taken away from you. I mean, you're slowly yeah. losing all of these things. And I think like what you're saying specifically, and we'll get into this more as we talk about it, movement, body oh. movement, it took that body from movement. you as well. I, could hardly, I couldn't walk. Like I, I was so used to doing my body served me well my whole life. I didn't have one injury growing up dancing, fitness instructor, nothing. And it, my body worked for me. It, it always, it did what I wanted. And then now it was, I was out of control, which is another piece of why I was drinking. Whenever I felt an element of out of control or wanting to change the way I feel, it would just take that edge right off at all. So I felt very out of control with the hip surgeries. So then I, you know, I, I went, did all the right things, physio. I also, though, Dwayne, I, I pulled my, when I look back, I never wanted people to think my whole life that there was adversity with my, like, I never wanted them to think that I couldn't do something. And that might be a conditioning of my mom putting me on stage at a young age, like the star. And I was always got accolades that way. I felt very loved that way. And so I never wanted to let people know when things were not going well. So even in my hip recovery, when things were rough, I still, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I got this. I'm like, wow, Michelle, you're recovering so quick. You're a star. I'm like, 
you know, it, I'm just being honest. It, it was, I wasn't a star, but I didn't want to let right. people into that. And now yeah, I do. Now I'm like, now I'm like, I tell people I'm an open book with my emotions and recovery, but, but I didn't time, want to, I didn't want to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I at the time, it, anything. yeah, at the time you definitely probably were stuck I mean, if you show this part of you, it wasn't allowed. It wasn't lovable. It wasn't good. It, right. And you just do it automatically. You just hide that need for support. That's, yeah, that's that's a very good way to put it. Hide the need for support. And that's huge in my recovery is letting people in. And, and yeah. my support group, we can talk about that after. With the well, it makes you vulnerable. When, yeah, yes. I mean, when we ask for support, it makes us vulnerable to other people who you know, Absolutely. if we don't, if we, if we're afraid of that, then we're not going to do it. And then we're not going to get that support. That's right. So I, I kept it all together on the surface while still drinking. And so then fast forward to right before the pandemic, I was healed. I felt good. My hips felt strong again. I was back. My 2020 calendar was booked with keynote presentations and travel and workshops. And I would, but I was still obviously drinking they're a high functioning alcoholic if I look back at the, the patterns. But I always, part of me inside was thinking, how, if I'm in the wellness space, telling people on stages to take care of themselves and get hired as a wellness speaker, I'm drinking. Something feels off. And these were thoughts I had for probably over 10 years, but I didn't right. know how to stop. And I thought, how do I, how do, I do it? Because it was so connected to my social fabric, to what I thought fun was. To, my, to the people, I thought, how would I hang out with them if we don't drink? Well, I know now in recovery, we, we hang out all the time. We don't have to drink. But these were the right. thoughts that I yeah. had. I thought, what would my life look like without alcohol? And then I would just not want to think about it and continue drinking. Um, yeah, so 2020, the pandemic, I get an email probably every other day saying, like, event is canceled, event is postponed, event is moved to 2020, 21, 22. And I had lost all of my work, which was my escape, for sure. One of my escapes. Yeah. So with the isolation, my, my husband and I were now divorced after in recovery, a very amicable divorce that we co-parent our son. But it, in recovery, I came to many realizations that the marriage was no longer working, which I is quite common right. as I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, we did our best to, um, with when COVID arrived, uh, we were in our condo there. We were like a box in the sky, locked up isolated I couldn't go anywhere so I had to just lean hard into my second escape which was booze wow. and he and he you know him and I drank together we connected together and he's a normal drinker he's not an alcoholic so July of 2020 we both decided well he decided that we should stop drinking let's give it a try and stop I think we're drinking too much and I'm sure you can understand with COVID yeah you know he's glamorized get stock up on your booze, have zoom parties. Like it was booze was set up. I was like, I got yeah, this. It was name. a way to escape like, all of this. <laughs> it was and yeah. our, in Ontario in uh, in our province, like the health, obviously hospitals and everything were open and the liquor stores was an essential service. They stayed open. Cause wow. you know, it's wild when you think about that. <laughs> alcohol, yeah. It's essential. Alcohol, we, alcohol not, is essential. <laughs> our society's not going to survive if we don't have this flowing. I, th I think there are people afraid of what people would, happen if they stopped yeah what happened yeah, to no. our healthcare system I don't yeah know. absolutely i know it's kind of crazy thinking but I, I probably and i was wondering too because now almost everything is taken from you at this moment and it makes a lot of sense that without all of this escape and avoidance 
behaviors, you know, and you and you can't get support and you can't talk to anybody and you can't let anybody in. It just seems like, yeah, alcohol would really help with that in a way, or at least in a know, way. when well, I say help, <laughs> I don't really helped. mean help. Yeah, I, I, we know what that means. Yeah, Check out. Yeah. Check <laughs> it out. helped and it, it worked until it didn't work. So we, we, in air quotes, stopped in July. He stopped drinking. And that's when I felt like an addict. That's when I felt like the hiding, the sleep sneaking, the lying, because I was right. still drinking. I was still determined to keep drinking. And I feel a lot of shame about that, which I've processed and I'm, I'm actually working through it. But I, I was like that woman I saw, I would read about or see in movies where they hide alcohol. Who does that? Like in their homes or go out of the house to go and get it. Like I was doing all of that because I, I didn't know what else to do to escape. But the, the behaviors attached to it were so not like me. Right. And that's really where you yeah. really started to see that I've lost myself here. I've lost myself. And my girlfriends were very concerned about me. They were sort of rallying around me, around with my husband, saying, Michelle needs help. And I was not willing to hear it. So I remember saying, if there's an intervention, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> they didn't do a real intervention, but they definitely did. Uh, they sought out different treatment center options for me and presented me with one that they thought I'd go to that was more like, you know, it was beautiful in an area of Canada called Muskoka. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, it had yoga and it had delicious food and nature. And they knew that I would get behind something like that a little bit more. So they, in a way, could see your suffering more than you could admit to it. For sure. I was actually grateful that they presented me with, with it because I, I did know I was in trouble. I knew wow. I was drinking way too much. I think for the first time, because I'm a very even keeled emotionally emotional person i i've quite upbeat my whole life and i feel like i got a glimmer of what what depression would be like so i was under the covers at 2 p.m i had no motivation i was worried about the way my son was viewing me i wasn't myself he was worried about me i just was not myself i was lost in i was lost i i didn't know where to go and what to do and how to stop and we didn't know when the pandemic was going to stop so i thought what when is this it was a really really dark time yeah, it sounds sure. like yeah. it sounds very dark and and it's um, not myself. And so that was about two, that was two years ago, right around now, like uh, September, October, November, was when I was just hanging on, drinking privately, uh, sneaking, lying, like I mentioned. And they, I then had a long walk with one of my closest girlfriends, and she broke down. I broke down, and she's like, "Just Michelle, just surrender, just go, just go to one of these treatment centers." What I mean just do it just you'll just 30 days go in and check it out and and see what so that was a huge deal for me as the woman yeah. that didn't want to show that i had any adversity so i went to a treatment center for 30 days where i really saw number one a chance for me to be away from my substance so i couldn't get access to any alcohol which was exactly what i needed but also a chance to be alone for 30 days i had ne- i had never spent any time alone my whole life. I'm an only child. I had family around me all the time. I always had roommates. I always had boyfriends or husband. Like it, I was, I had never lived alone. It was wild when I looked back. It was my first time alone in 30, wow, you, for 30 days. And you have to really begin to face yourself when you're alone. That's it. And that's what I didn't want to do. Even when I was alone during the last couple of years of drinking, it's because I drank because I didn't even want to be alone, sober. I, I was yeah. so unsure of my identity and who I was. And 
yeah, I've come so far from that. I can't, I can't believe it. So I love being alone now. <laughs> I'm a totally, I totally love my solitude. It's, I, it's, it's amazing what has happened in recovery. So I came out of the treatment center and my husband and I separated and now, yeah, I, I, I'm living like a totally different life. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the saying before, part of recovery is learning how to turn loneliness into solitude, just like you said, and being able to to do That's that right. over time. So you go to this treatment center and you start to go through this process and in a way, I guess find yourself again or find your authentic self. How did you start mm-hmm. to do that? Uh, I think that I think the solitude was a big piece, just being in my own room every night by myself, starting to develop routines that I like. Like I used to teach people about a morning routine, yet I never did one. So I'm actually right. now putting putting into practice what I was uh, sharing with people. I went, I spent a lot of time alone. That's the, I think that's number one. And started obviously had great uh, the programming there, all the information that I gathered. It was a month of discovery and learning about my addiction and learning about alcoholism and and seeing it as it is and not as a shameful stigmatized thing. I also didn't want to call myself an alcoholic for about 7 months. I was so against it, which I think is quite common. I'm not going to say this. I'm going to say this I'm out loud. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, I was in, I was think I was in a little denial still. But I, I, I think what started happening was I was moving my body as well for my, for me. I was always in a teaching, facilitating, leading role. So now it was just me. I would, I'd find, I went for long walks. I would do my own yoga. I, I just never, I never really did things for me. I've realized that it was always for others and for my son and and for the, for the joy of other people. But I really had to go in and maybe just be a little selfish and take care of, take care of myself. Yeah, it's like you had this amazing skill set that you could give to other people, yet you couldn't give it to yourself for all of what all, you know, all our reasons for that, all our blocks and all our stuff. And it sounds like in moving through this process, you're able to now give these skills of movement, of yoga, truly to yourself. I've never actually made that connection that you just made, and it's so true. Yeah. It is very true. Everything I do for myself is what I've been doing for others, but more. It's more enriched now with the knowledge of recovery and all the yeah. amazing yeah. resources that I've had access to. Uh, so when I came out of the treatment center, I pulled the old ego, <laughs> the ego mm. star captain recovery. I decided to not work a 12-step program and do it my own way. <laughs> I'm going to create my own recovery model, which led me to relapsing in uh, June of last year, 2021. And then that was a big wake up call for me to just surrender again to yeah. letting people in, letting a program in that works, getting a great new therapist that specializes in addictions. And those three together have made me completely stronger in my last year of sobriety. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's so great to hear and to be able to do that. And, and sometimes those bumps in the road are the things we need that, kind of mm-hmm. kick us kick us again back into our process. No, I, was, I, was, I thought I could drink normally again. That's what I tried to do. Just, oh, I think I just have one glass of wine. And it's amazing what this addiction and what this disease does. It takes us right back. It's a, you know, it takes right back to where I left off. There was right, no way. And then what I was suffering with was the anxiety of not, of, of the relapsing and not telling anybody. That was horrible. Right. And then, yeah, all that fear of being a disappointment and not being good enough mm-hmm. and, 
yeah, you know, it's it's like sometimes these things happen to, I guess, just help us face all those things again, you know, on a new level and yeah. just dig a little deeper and and go a little little farther. So let's talk a little bit about, as we were saying earlier, you have this skill set around breath work and mindfulness and yoga and movement and how that is become part of this recovery process and how you're doing that for yourself and then also sharing it with other people. Yeah, I'd love to share this. So the breath, so I had had my own, like I mentioned, my own business that involved movement and mindfulness and wellness principles for, you know, since 2007. But what really came of being alone in solitude in recovery, moving my way, exploring breath work, exploring meditation, more and more deeper personal reflection I started to think that that's where breath and fire was was truly birthed out of my recovery. It was all the things I was doing, thinking, oh, I should, I, and journaling. I've never been a journaler my entire life. Uh, and now, now I'm a, quite a, a daily journal. I write every day. I, ha- I feel like I have to. And through that is where I saw myself creating. I got my creative spark has been fired again in recovery. I think it was dimming. And that's the whole connection to the idea of the flame. So the fire piece. So during the last couple of years leading up to the pandemic, and then especially during the during the lockdown, because we were locked down for a long time in Toronto. We're the we were the city the most in the, the world that was locked down the longest. Wow. So we had a we were isolated and kept in a lot. It was well, that's, super that's a lot. Hard. That was that was so hard for everybody. So I mean, hard. it was so hard on so many levels. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So I considered myself, I like, I said, I feel like I, you know, our spirit, our, our flame, our fire, our home, mine was like on a pilot light. Like it was just flickering. It was, I could not get, give it anything anymore. Like, I think after the hip surgeries, recovering from them and then the pandemic, it just, I couldn't get my fire. And then I thought about the years before that, it was like a blazing inferno. I was, I was going, going, going constantly for about 20 years, I would say no, I would never say no to anything. I always had FOMO. I was busy in my schedule. If I had a free hour, I'd fill it with, you know, a, a walk with a friend or a, a visit there or a drink here. <laughs> I just felt like I never found my breath. So I'm like, hey, Michelle, you have either a pilot light or a blazing inferno. How do we find this optimal, like controlled blaze? And that's the the birth of breath and fire is recognizing and from doing it from personal experience, recognizing in my day, when do I need breath and when do I need fire? And I'm so attuned to it now. So if I've been in a social situation or even after this talk we have right now, it's fire for me because my, you know, our, my nervous right, system yeah. is up and I, I'm going to go, I've already movement. planned. It's activated, right? I'm, I'm going to go for probably a nice long stroll or sit on a rock in the sun after we do this because that's my breath. Cause I know I have some more fire later today. So I right. never was aware. It's all, it's all awareness. And I'll, I'll catch myself when I've been around people too much. It's like someone, a pretend person myself taps me on the shoulder, get out time to go find your breath, <laughs> which right. means for me, it can be walking, having a bath, meditating, uh, having a rest, having a nap. It could be anything being in nature. That's ways to find my breath. And then fire for me is like social situations and moving my body, doing hobbies, activities, having phone calls, but it's that balance that I need. And that keeps me healthy when I'm in in a balance, keeps me in the flow. Yeah. It's finding that middle way and learning how to live in our middle way 
and balancing those, you know, balancing our nervous system, being aware of our nervous system, that these things are happening even maybe on an unconscious level and being aware of that and appreciating it. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I can see it in others too. And I think like, and that's what my program is called homecoming. It's a three week intensive where they get really, they zoom into what they do a personal inventory of what brings me breath. What things do I love that are in the breath category? What's in the fire. And then what, how can I build those into my day? And I realize when I speak to others, their life is full of fire. Mostly it's go, go, go. It's kids activities. It's racing here. Work, work creates a lot of fire. Then they're doing this. And it's like, when are you taking time, even 10 minutes to just yeah. sit, just 10 minutes and let your nervous system settle, find your breath. And I love breath work so much. <laughs> Meditation has been such a big part of my recovery. But yeah, just having people recognize it. Yeah. So being able to recognize that, right, is, is maybe the first part, being able to see that and then having the tools to actually do it. So let's talk about movement breathwork, yoga, and how using that can help you find both sides of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this. So I guess with the movement piece, so I was traditionally, I'll just speak about my experience and then tied into how I work with others. I was always of the mentality that harder, faster, stronger, workout, find the hottest trend, CrossFit, whatever, running, And that is exhausting. And also as we age, it doesn't serve our body that well. I have many clients that are, you know, women in their 50s and 60s with knee issues or back issues. And I'm like, why are you still going to a gym? Or why are you still running if it hurts? I'm like, I'm done hurting. I I don't want my body to feel that way. (laughs) And that's all new in recovery as well is that I want, so the movement that I share with others it is again, birthed out of my just moving that I, I started doing during recoveries, putting great music on functional, intentional movement, and not for an hour. I always teach people or share with people that little breaks through the day. So getting up in the morning and as easy as like jumping around, shaking, putting music on, if you want to dance a little bit or, or move around, if you want to squat or do a stretch or whatever it is, but something that I always say, you're moving the energy, move the energy through your body. And it's going to feel weird. You're going to have that little voice in your head that'll say, what am I doing? <laughs> I <Right>. feel stupid. <laughs> right. But, but just shaking and move. And that's all like moving any stuff, that feeling of stuckness. A lot of my clients say, I feel stuck in my body. Well, you know what? You have access to move it and move it in like unconventional and functional ways, swinging, twisting, shaking. So that's all that that's new for me to share that with them. And then the the yoga piece, I'm a certified yoga and teacher, but I really believe in fusion. So the shaking, twisting, jumping stuff, and then the, the yoga flow of some sort, whether that be finding a posture that you feel a great deep stretch in and staying in it and breathing in it. Uh, just finding those moments of flexibility and focus, that's where the yoga sort of comes in. And then the third piece, the, the breath work, is the connection to, you know, obviously to our breath and not judging it. And meditation is always tricky for people. They always think, oh, I can't meditate, Michelle. I can't sit still. My brain, go, go, go. Right, right. Really, it's okay because meditation is just being aware of our thoughts. That's what I teach people that, you know, Sitting in physical stillness and just for five minutes, even 
closing your eyes. If you want to have some music on, great. Connect to your breath. Be aware of it. And then, yes, thoughts are going to come. And then just observe them. Just And just be like clouds passing by. Like, oh, there's that one. Oh, man, there's that one again. And you just observe them. But you don't let them drop into a feeling. Because that's when we get stuck in the story. So just letting the thoughts go by. And they're like, oh, that's... Seems easy enough. I can try that. I can so do it, that. It's the, yeah, it's the non-judge. Really, Dwayne, it's the non-judgment piece. I teach people not to judge the way they move their bodies because we do. We have that voice in our head that says we have to look like somebody, do it like them, copy them, and what and and my way is not the right way. Your way is always the right way. Yeah, that's how I feel about that's how I feel about movement and, and breath work. Always the right way, the way you want to move. You got to shut that voice up. It is what it is. How has this work for you doing this work in this in this new way helped connect you to your authentic self? Oh, yeah. I think the meditation, the, the daily meditation has just settled. It, you know, it, it's made me get curious and become more acquainted with my quiet self that I didn't think I had. I was conditioned and told by my parents that I was a performer. So I thought I always had to be an extrovert. I think that's who I was groomed to be. So I think even those social situations that I was put in for 25 years, that's where drinking also helped. Not that I was shy, but that it made me more extroverted because that's who I thought I should be is this like, oh, she's the dancer, performer. Here she comes to the party. She's going to perform for us. (laughs) Well, I have, I got to get pretty loopy to do that. Because it's right. not my authentic self. So remove the alcohol, body awareness, connection to breath. It's like, oh, there she is, the quiet girl. And I, I, I like her. <laughs> She's calm. Yeah. And I, did, like, I didn't know her for 25 years. It's like connecting to your whole person. And I, I'm, I'm watching you as we're talking. And, and the audience will be listening to this, so they won't see it. But I love how you put your hands on your chest and your heart. And you just held yourself so close. It was so loving. And I think, you know, that's just amazing because it it just shows that connection and how this work of recovery, breath work, mindfulness, and, and, you know, therapy and all these things bring us home to ourselves. Yeah, that's the whole message of, of homecoming. The program that I do is finding home, finding your flame, finding your spirit. And we get lost along the way, big time. And alcohol and you know, substances really take us down a totally different trajectory. So yeah, yeah just not not how. And I was gonna say one thing about the quiet girl. I forgot now. Something about the essence connected with alcohol. But something to do with just not having that that crutch or that thing anymore in my life is just so freeing. I feel liberated not having to drink anymore. And yeah. like the obsession is gone. This obsession is gone. And I don't want to do that to myself anymore. When I think about, even from a physio- physiological perspective, I, like I was putting toxins in my body heavily for decades. And so I just yeah. have a whole different view on it. Yeah. That, it's come that, with work. It's daily work, daily work for sure. It comes with work. It's not, yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, maybe it happens for some people, but I, I always feel, yeah, usually it's a little bit of effort and work and, Sometimes a little bit of sadness and pain and grief and loss, but it's worth it to get to the other side. So, Michelle, we're coming up on our time. 
I mean, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> this has been such a great story and I, I love talking with you and I can just feel your passion and I can feel that, that journey, I guess I could say, I can see the journey in you. And I love seeing that in people. It just, it's, it's so exhilarating and inspiring. So anyway, oh, one, one more question be- before we go. Okay. Uh, what I like to ask guests is, if someone is out there and maybe they're hurting, struggling, lost, feel disconnected from their authentic self, and you could tell them one thing, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say? You could tell them one thing. The one thing would be the work is worth it. The, the work, work that is comes worth with it. it. But I think I'd also have them think back to a time when they felt like their authentic self and try to find a photo and look at it and remember how they felt. Go into the feeling, drop into the heart. How did you feel and what's changed? Awesome. Thank you so much. So how can people find more about, about you if they, if they have more questions or they want to reach For out sure. to you? How can they find you? Yeah, sure. So I'm, uh, my website is breathandfire.com and I offer um, the homecoming program as a three-week intensive. The next one, they five run throughout the year. You don't have to be in Canada. It is uh, self-directed and also live on zoom three times a week so we, you can do it from wherever you are so check that out and then i also do um you know keynote speaking and workshops for all organizations i always say if, if they're human they're my audience doesn't matter at all if they're in any industry at all so they can find all that information on the website and my and instagram is a great place to see more dynamic updates as opposed to the website and i'm at michelle underscore breath and fire Awesome. And I will put all that information in the show notes as well at theaddictedmind.com. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom, your story with everyone. I really appreciate it. No problem. And Dwayne, let's take one big breath together at the end to close out. Sounds good. So drop your shoulders, sit up nice and tall, put one hand on your heart, one on your belly. Let's breathe in through the nose, close the eyes. Hold it, and then I want you to do a nice, beautiful sigh to exhale. Let it go. Yeah, there's lots of power in one breath. Never forget that. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast as usual. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can find all the links to Michelle's work and her Breath and Fire program. So check that out. Also, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind and you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or write a review. Either one, it's great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in The Addicted Mind Podcast and click join. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? 
Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.